Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwar Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lauper, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of NucleCast. Of course, as always, I am still Adam Lowther, and today we have a great guest, a friend of mine. You probably know him. He's way more famous than I am, and he doesn't even do a podcast. But of course, I'm talking about Matt Kronig. Now, Matt, as you probably know, you've read his books, his articles. He writes uh, widely. Uh, he's the vice president at the Atlantic Council these days, and he's still, if you're a student, he's still on the faculty at Georgetown where you can take his class. And of course, I would always recommend that if you can take one of Matt's classes, do so, because he's probably one of the best faculty they've got at Georgetown. With that, Matt, welcome to NucleCast. Well, Adam, thanks very much for that very generous um, introduction. And uh, we have been friends and colleagues for a long time, so it's really a pleasure for me to be back and uh, talking with you and your listeners on, on these important topics. So one of the big things that, you know, we've talked about over the years, and I think you probably did about the best job of anybody is when you wrote, uh, you wrote a book a few years ago that, you know, I think, what, what was that? Four years ago, maybe by now, three years ago, 2018, if I'm thinking of the yeah. same book. Yeah. yeah. The logic of American nuclear strategy and in that book, you made the case for, and I think it's particularly important after uh, Jake Sullivan's speech to the Arms Control Association, but you argued that nuclear superiority actually does matter. And and for at a time when the Russians clearly, you know, they're, they're, they've suspended participation in New START, they very well may have a breakout. They clearly have a non-strategic nuclear weapons advantage of thousands. The Chinese are expected to go to 1,500. The North Koreans are going to build, we don't even really know. They, you know, Kim Jong-un says he'll have a peer arsenal to, the, to us. We'll see what that looks like. The Iranians are, you know, enriching the weapons grade. We very well could be you know, severely outmatched by bad guys in the very near future, I thought it would be important to actually have this discussion about nuclear superiority. So for the listeners that maybe they've read the book, but they forgot it, or maybe they've never read the book, tell us what your your basic argument of why does superiority matter? Well, sure. Happy to do that. And, and if you don't mind, I, I think I'd maybe rather start with the conventional wisdom. Sure. I, I think that sets up my argument um, because uh, there is, is this conventional wisdom in the academic community that says as long as you have a secure second strike capability, um, you know, as long as you can absorb a nuclear attack and retaliate with a devastating second strike, that's enough for deterrence. And, and anything above and beyond that is um, overkill and irrelevant. Um, you know, the problem with this theory is that you look in the real world and, and that's not how countries behave. Uh, the United States has 
thousands of nuclear weapons, counterforce uh, targeting uh, strategies, missile defenses. Uh, Russia, China are, are building up, as you point out. Uh, and so they're not uh, behaving according uh, to the theory. So there's a mismatch between the academic theory and the evidence. And uh, scholars who've looked at this in the past uh, have noticed this gap and has, have essentially dismissed the real world and said, well, my theory is right, the world is wrong, um, you know, policymakers should pay attention to my theory. And so in this book, I try to take uh, the opposite um, approach and, and say, if we really want to be social scientists, we need to explain the way the world really is and the way it really works. And, and clearly, uh, policymakers in the U.S. and elsewhere uh, believe that nuclear superiority uh, and numbers of nuclear weapons do, do really matter. Um, so I can jump straight into why I think they matter. Go for it. Yeah, go, yeah, go for it. Go for it. You know, I'm a professor, so I'm used to speaking in, uh, 70 minutes. Cut me off. But, um, you know, so, so I think, uh, first let's start with, uh, I think superiority matters for war fighting, for, uh, coercion and high stakes crises and for deterrence. And so I'll just, uh, go through each of those and, you know, God forbid if there is a full scale nuclear exchange, um, obviously numbers of nuclear weapons matter. If the United States absorbs uh, one or two or 10 nuclear weapons, that would be a catastrophe of historic proportions, but absorbing hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of nuclear weapons would be uh, even, even worse. Uh, and so the nuclear balance of power between the United States and its adversaries does determine um, nuclear war outcomes. Uh, now, obviously, the purpose is to deter nuclear war in the first place, but I think if we want to be serious nuclear strategists, uh, we do need to thank the unthinkable, is the way Herman Kahn uh, put it, and, and think about um, that. Okay, so if there are differences in nuclear war outcomes, then that does affect, uh, I think, nuclear um, coercion. And many nuclear strategists over the years have thought about um, nuclear um, deterrence a as a game of chicken. Uh, you know, think of two cars on a collision course, which car is going to swerve first? Uh, you can think about the Cuban Missile Crisis, where the United States and the Soviet Union were uh, on a collision course. The Soviet Union swerved and, and moved missiles. Um, so what determines who wins these games of nuclear brinkmanship, these games of nuclear uh, chicken? And, and I argue in the book that the, the nuclear balance of power does matter, that if um, the nuclear war is going to be very uh, catastrophic for one side, less catastrophic for the other side. Uh, the, the country that has uh, superiority, that's in the stronger position, is going to be more willing to run risks. Now, that's not to say that they automatically win, that the other side automatically backs down. But on average, as leaders are making these gut-wrenching decisions, should we escalate this important crisis to achieve our objectives, or should we back down to avoid nuclear war? The country in the superior position is going to be more likely to say, this is tough, but let's let's stand firm. The country in the inferior position is going to be more likely to say, this is tough, it's time to seek um, off-ramps. Um, or, or to use the chicken um, analogy, uh, you know, we, we might expect the smaller car to swerve first, even if a crash is bad for both. Um, and then the third and final point is uh, for deterrence itself. You know, if you're going to play a game of uh, nuclear chicken and uh, you have to drive a, a Prius and the other guy's driving a, a Hummer, you know, you're probably going to say, you know what, I'd rather not play today. And the next day, say, yeah. you know what, I'd rather not play today. Um, and, and, and so I think that's why, um, from theoretical terms, that, that nuclear superiority does matter. And then I think there are several reasons why, uh, in particular, uh, pursuing a more robust nuclear force makes sense for, for the United States, more so than for other countries.
Yeah, it's a well, you know, when you talk about sort of the guy with the superior with the inferior arsenal says not today. Of course, that drives me to think about, you know, Ukraine and this, you know, with with Russia making nuclear threats and I mean, we're very clearly the ones in the inferior position here. So that would mean that we're the ones that back down over and over and over again. Am I reading, you know, this, uh, as you look at the Ukraine, I mean, that's part of what Atlantic Council does is look at this. And as as you and, you know, the, the folks at Atlantic Council look at it, how do you see it? Yeah, well, you know, I think we can think about the nuclear balance between the United States and NATO on one hand and Russia on the other hand, uh, both at the strategic level and, and the non-strategic level. At the strategic level, who has the advantage there? I'm not sure. Russia probably does have more numbers because in addition to their new start constrained uh, arsenal, they have these other strategic capabilities not um, uh, counted by new start, their their so-called exotic systems. But then clearly at the non-strategic level, uh, Russia does have the advantage. Thousands of non-strategic nuclear weapons, um, depth charges, uh, uh, short-range missiles, um, you know, all, 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 basically every weapon they have, they, they put a nuke on it. The United States and NATO only have these 200 um, or so gravity bombs. And, and so Russia does have the non-strategic nuclear advantage, and I think they're using it. And, and Putin has been making um, nuclear threats, basically trying to turn the war in Ukraine into a game of nuclear chicken. Um, and, and the United States has continually um, uh, swerved from this. Biden has... Uh, said very clearly that he doesn't want nuclear escalation, that he's afraid of nuclear escalation, that he's purposely limiting uh, American conventional aid to Ukraine uh, to avoid nuclear escalation. So I think Putin's nuclear threats uh, are working and, and that's a problem. Uh, and I think to counter this, uh, you know, we should be sending uh, the opposite message, that we're not going to be deterred by Putin's um, nuclear threats um, and that if he uses nuclear weapons, we have the uh, ability to and will to respond in kind. Um, unfortunately, it's not clear that we have the uh, capability now because we've let our non-strategic nuclear arsenal deteriorate so much since the end of the Cold War. And I do think that the United States should uh, build additional non-strategic nuclear capabilities like Slickamen uh, to start, but probably more uh, in addition to that. Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned Slickamen and you know, I often I a couple of years ago I wanted to do some writing about uh, INF, and because I've written a few articles about you know it's one thing spending some time with the Army. I really got to understand who actually will have to fight a nuclear war, and it's not really the Navy or the Air Force; it's actually the Army, and you know they're the ones who will most likely see potentially low yield or mid-yield tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield that they'll have to fight around and through. And so I spent some time looking at it. And then I went to the Reagan library and started going, going through all of the debates, the white house debates about INF and about, you know, Pershing twos and Glickums and why would they do it? And in some respects, I think we're in a sort of similar time now, except we're not following the wisdom that, you know, sort of Reagan established where, you know, he built a very scary arsenal to then negotiate it away at a time when, and, you know, I guess I would always, somebody pointed out to me, and I think they're a hundred percent right that this really isn't for the Russians. It's all strategic. 
there's there's no really no such thing as a tactical nuclear weapon in Europe, but because for the Russians it's strategic because you can take out Moscow and it's only tactical for us. And and if you think of it that way, then their advantage is even greater. And so, I I'm, do you do you foresee you know slick them in as sort of that closest gator to the boat where we could potentially get it? It's hanging around there. But uh, I've often, you know, we, we had on the show uh, Brad Garricky, who was a he was the Army's chief strategist. And I, I said, hey, what about, you know, Glickham two and Pershing three? Because those are those would be some mighty powerful, you know, uh, tools. And he says, well, the Army's just not prepared to, to have nuclear weapons again, uh, like, you know, a Pershing type weapon. And so I wonder if if it's time for us to have some really sort of radical change in the way we do things. Uh, you know, we've we've looked for conventional superiority, precision guided munitions. We can put windows, we can put you know weapons through windows. But is that really good enough now? Because I I'm wondering if if that's actually even more provocative. Yeah. I think we're on the same page. I think it's not good enough now. And, and just to back up for a second, put it in a bigger strategic context. You know, in a way, we're, we're in kind of a third nuclear age. You know, we had this first nuclear age, which was the Cold War. Nuclear weapons were central. Um, and then we had this post-Cold War period where nuclear reductions were relatively easy. Arms control agreements were relatively easy. And I think that period's over. Uh, we're entering... Um, you know, whether you want to call it a new Cold War or not, we're, we're entering a serious competition with both China and Russia, two uh, peer nuclear superpowers for the first time in our history. And so I think uh, almost everything we thought we knew about nuclear weapons from 1991 to 20 to 23, that, that's over. I, I think we do need to go back to the Cold War for lessons about what we need for now. And as you point out, INF um, made a lot of sense. I, I intermediate range ground launched missiles in Europe made a lot of sense during the Cold War. Uh, and I do think they make a lot of sense now. So slick them in, I, I think, is a, a helpful capability uh, in both Europe and Asia. But, you know, Asia, more of a maritime uh, theater. And I think uh, slick them in uh, for that reason could be very helpful there. But Europe, uh, you know, it's uh, primarily a, a land a theater. I think having land based non-strategic weapons makes sense. And so a number of ways you could do it. Um, you know, I, I don't know that I would uh, uh, make this case to um, Democrats on, on the Hill or others, but part of the reason I want to slick them in is because I think once you get that, then doing a ground launched version should be pretty easy. You could put it in a truck, uh, drive it around um, Europe. Uh, the, the other benefit of that, I think, is, is you could make it a NATO um, capability. You know, during the Cold War, we thought it was important for NATO as an alliance to have a nuclear capability, not just the U.S. and the British and, and the French. Right now, all we have are these gravity bombs, which probably aren't very helpful to the most likely conflict zones um, uh, in Eastern Europe. Uh, slick them in, you know, is, is inherently a U.S. capability. Uh, so that has some advantages, but it has the disadvantage that it's not a, an, an alliance capability. Whereas I think if you did have a Glickham, uh, that that um, could be uh, a, a NATO uh, capability deployed you know, on the territory of our of our allies. Yeah, I mean... It- as I think about the DCA, the dual capable aircraft mission, you know, as I try to play these out, you know, I, I build war games and think through scenarios and try to build red team efforts. And one of the things that I think through is, you know, having visited the bases in which we have the DCA, 
I I can fully imagine that the Russians at, at the earliest stages of any conflict with NATO, those bases and some of those bases are not the most secure bases. I mean, the, there's I've driven around the perimeter of some and the fencing's down and it's wooded and and then you know if you can get to the aircraft shelters and you know, or with conventional missile strikes on those aircraft shelters, you might could take the shelters down, the aircraft out. And of course, those vaults are going to be fine, but you can't do anything with them. And so I could, you know, foresee that we would sort of take out or the Russians would take out that. Now, let's suppose we got those aircraft in the air and they're loaded with weapons and they're armed. You've got to have a CISNO RISNO capability, conventional support to nuclear operations and reconnaissance and you have to have it's it's these you know seed packages that you've the suppression of enemy uh, enemy air defenses. You got to do all this stuff. You don't just send an aircraft to go drop a bomb. And doing all of that at a time when we there is no declared you know enemy. Even now, there I mean you the NATO's heightened its posture, but they don't have a declared enemy. They don't have you know a quote unquote O plan or a psyop. Uh, they don't have, they, it's just, it's not what they do. So actually making those, the DCA mission threatening is one that an operational is one that I think is, you know, I sort of like, I don't know about that one. And I, you know, the Russians are watching and, and that's part of, you know, this sort of this idea. And I think you mentioned it where it's not just, you know, where the arms control community says, well, if the only purpose of nuclear weapons is to deter the use of nuclear weapons, then let's just get rid of them. And it's like, no, the purpose is to plan and fight a nuclear war. And then they call us warmongers. But then the whole reason of planning for a nuclear fight is that your adversary sees that and therefore says not today. I mean, am I missing something, Matt? Or, or how do we convince those that don't don't understand sort of this way of thinking. How do we convince them of it? Well, well, that's a good question. And, um, you know, I, I think, I think there are a lot of people who don't, can't be convinced that uh, for them, it is more ideological. They think that nuclear weapons are bad. It doesn't matter whose nuclear weapons, you know, Russian nuclear weapons and American nuclear weapons, they're all bad. Uh, they don't have any influence in Russia, but they can get in the op-ed pages in the United States and say, you know, let's get rid of um, our, our nuclear weapons. Fortunately, I do think that those people are, are increasingly outside of the policy mainstream. I mean, if you look at um, you know, the strategic arsenal modernization started under Obama, continued with Trump, uh, continued with Biden. So I think there is good bipartisan support there. Um, and then, um, you know, I do worry about the non-strategic um, nuclear weapons, but, uh, you know, the Trump administration proposed slick them in. Biden said they're going to cut it. But now you have bipartisan majorities in Congress who are wanting to fund slick them in. Um, there is a, a new congressional commission that's meeting, expected to, to release a report soon. So I, I hope that uh, it seems to me that the bipartisan consensus on actual policy is is moving in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, if I know you're a member of the that Strategic Posture Commission, is there anything you want to share with us about, uh, you know, what y'all have been thinking and sort of what we might expect? Well, um, I, I'm not at liberty to talk about the <laughs> um, deliberations or, or the recommendations, but we are meeting and um, we uh, do owe a report to Congress um, very soon. So I think you and your listeners can can expect to see that 
uh, probably early early this fall. And um, I, I do um, uh, I, I do think we're entering a, a new period, and fresh thinking is needed. And I, I hope the commission report is is at least a step in, in that direction. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the AMLA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. Well, so Jake Sullivan the national security advisor went to the arms control association's annual meeting and said that, you know, he basically said what, what we, we on the sort of pro new side would think he should say in terms of, you know, the Chinese are building, the Russians are bad. They've got a lot more, but then he sort of let us all down when he said, but we don't need any more nukes to deal with this, which was sort of one of those head scratchers. How do you, you know, how did you, when you heard this, how did you take his argument? What was your, you know, sort of internal dialogue as he was offering this explanation for how we're going to deal with the, you know, all these bad actors? Yeah, so I'll make two points. Um, first, looking um, at the Biden nuclear posture review, um, and uh, which I think Jake Sullivan was also referencing during that speech. You know, I, I think they the nuclear posture review and Jake Sullivan got the threat environment right. Uh, you know, that, that this is a dangerous threat environment, two-peer nuclear powers, China's building up. Um, but then uh, what was puzzling to me is in the nuclear posture review, then they essentially say, therefore, we're going to do everything the same and we're going to cut them in. So you're saying the threat environment is high uh, uh, and, and, you know, uh, level the threat is increasing, but we're going to, you know, keep our posture the same. That, that doesn't make sense to me. And so for the same reason Sullivan's uh, speech didn't make sense to me, it seems like if the threat environment is worse, then we need to adjust our posture um, accordingly. And, and I believe that one of the key quotes, uh, Sullivan said that we don't need as many, or we don't need more nuclear weapons than Russia and China combined, uh, which was a little bit of a uh, kind of a red herring. I don't think anybody is saying we need to count off Russia's nuclear weapons and China's nuclear weapons and get one more, and that's the number. Um, you know, as you know, the way uh, the United States has done force sizing has roughly been to say, what are the targets that we need to hold at risk and, and how many nuclear weapons do we need to hold those targets at risk? And so with China building up, um, I, I think that does mean there are more targets and so that the United States will likely need more warheads. But it's not, uh, you know, that that's a, a targeting problem to be worked out at STRATCOM. It's not Russia's nuclear weapons plus China's nuclear weapons plus one. It's it's what are the targets in Russia and China? What are the warheads we need? And, and I think it's not 1550, which is what we're limited to in New START. You know, that was a number decided in 2010 in a very different um, security environment. We're now halfway into the 2020s, a much more dangerous security environment. And so I do think we need more than more than 1550. But so if I go back to your superiority argument, wouldn't we sort of have to have more than the Russians and the Chinese 
you know, to, to maintain that superiority and sort of, you know, force them to say not today? Yeah. So, um, it, so I, th I think for superiority, what really matters is your vulnerability uh, to nuclear war. H how devastating would nuclear war be for you? How devastating would it be for the opponent? Uh, and you want the opponent to look at that and say, um, you, know, uh, you know, it's going to be bad for both sides, but for, for them to say, you know, this is, this is really bad. We need to seek off ramps uh, immediately for the United States to be able to say this will be really bad, but we're going to hang firm. And so it's not only about numbers of nuclear weapons. I think numbers of nuclear weapons is the most um, important um, driver. Uh, but I don't think it's as simple as you know making sure that we have at least one more nuclear weapon than China. Um, it, it's about do we have the posture, the, the targeting, uh, you know, the delivery vehicles, the, the missile uh, defenses, the, the civil defenses, the command and control, um, the, the whole kind of posture, so that when uh, we're looking at this, uh, it, it seems less scary to us than than it does to them. You know, we're recording this on August the 8th, so we've we've just had Hiroshima's anniversary and tomorrow's Nagasaki. And, I, you know, for, just based on our conversation, it seems to me we may find ourselves in a position where we're so outmatched that a counterforce approach is untenable. And that we may need to go to a counter value, which is, you know, sort of striking cities and things that people care about. And, you know, as I've, you know, read articles about that have come out in the last few days about why we didn't need to use an atomic bomb and this kind of stuff. I, I sort of think, you know, well, hey, for those of you in the disarmament community who want us to have fewer weapons, even as our adversaries grow, you should like attacks on cities because that's exactly where we have to go to if you if you win the argument and carry the day so shouldn't shouldn't you the disarmament crowd be justifying you know city strikes and and that's not what i'm hearing and and i sort of wonder you know i've been thinking a lot about just this idea of um sort of you know i used to teach a course in formal logic and and I as I've you know listened to the disarmament community, I don't think that they could they could uh, you know they couldn't map out their arguments in a logic form and such that it would it would be logically consistent. And and I wonder you know oftentimes arguments are more about emotion than they are about you know fact or theory or anything of that nature. And it seems that in many respects. This is really an argument about sort of a military argument versus a, an emotional sort of a moral argument. Um, how how do you sort of address this, you know, this dynamic of, you know, people are fighting sort of two different fights that are not the same and then sort of fighting each other? How, how do you sort of address that component? Yeah, I got a few things I'd say. So one, as you point out, the United States, um, you know, has always had a, a so-called counterforce targeting strategy. So that that is that we don't purposely target uh, population centers. Uh, rather, we hold at risk enemy uh, you know, command and control, military forces, including nuclear forces, bases. And, and there are three reasons, I think at least three reasons the United States has done that. One, uh, for moral and, and legal reasons. We try to comply with the law of armed conflict, even when it comes to nuclear war. 
Uh, two is uh, strategy reasons, um, so-called um, damage limitation, uh, that, um, you know, God forbid, if there is a nuclear war, if we can destroy the enemy's forces before they can be used against us and our allies, that um, is um, advantageous. Um, and then third, the deterrence is all about um, holding at risk that's, that what your adversary values. So what do Putin and Xi value? Do they value their people? I, I think we see right now in the war in Ukraine that Putin doesn't care about civilian, Russian civilian casualties. He's perfectly willing to kill a lot of uh, Russians, but he does care about his command and control, his military, and so holding that at risk, I think, is an effective deterrent. Um, so you are right now that, uh, but, but doing counterforce requires a, a certain, um, requires more numbers because then you need to hold at risk all those targets. You know, if we just wanted to kill a bunch of people in Beijing and Moscow, maybe two nuclear weapons is enough, maybe four. Uh, but if we want to hold at risk all these other uh, targets, then we need more numbers. So you do have people now arguing that with Russia and China, uh, both as, uh, that maybe that doesn't work anymore, maybe we can't do it, that we do have to go to a counter value strategy. Um, but, but, but I think that for many of those people, it's um, looking for justifications to cut the size of the arsenal. I don't know, I don't know that they think that would really be a good strategy. Um, I, I think that they're looking for justifications to cut. My argument would be, I, I think we know how to do deterrence. Uh, we've done it with uh, the Soviet Union and then Russia for decades without a deterrence failure um, so far. Um, and so now that we're dealing with two powers, I don't think the solution is to fundamentally rethink deterrence theory or deterrence strategy. I think we know how to do it. We just have to apply it to two actors and then say, what, what, is the, what are the forces we need to do it for two instead of just, just for one? Now we're, uh, you know, I, I like to, you know, sort of near the end of the show, I bring out my genie, Bob, and I, I grant, uh, or Bob grants, uh, I want to rub that lamp, and Bob grants wishes. So Bob, of course, he's granting you three wishes, but they got to be in regard to nuclear strategy in the arsenal. That's Bob's stipulation. So as you make those three wishes, what are they? Well, if it's really um, a uh, you know a magic genie, I, I guess wish number one would be Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran um, agree to unilaterally disarm. <laughs> uh, that that makes our deterrence challenge uh, much um, easier. Um, uh, two, two, I guess um, you know that that's unlikely, but I think that would be good. But two um, would be that um, the U.S. Congress uh, and and U.S. administrations and the American people understand the, the gravity um, of this situation. Nuclear deterrence is, is the most important mission um, of the United, uh, of the U.S. Department of Defense anyway. Um, I think people have forgotten that since the end of the Cold War. And as a result, we've let our, our modernization uh, programs, I, I don't think they've received the funding uh, that they need. Uh, we're facing a situation where our you know, nuclear weapons are getting old before the new ones are coming online. So just put, putting the money behind the existing program of record, making it the priority um, that it should be, making sure that the United States has the forces uh, that it needs to deter attacks on itself and, and its allies. Um, I, I guess if uh, the, the, I, don't, I don't think I even need three. I think if we do those two, we'll be in good shape. All right. Is, uh, so if you were to give our listeners, because... You know, we're, we're at the end of the show, and, and if you were to give them sort of a takeaway that you want them to remember, what is that? 
I guess that we're, we're entering um, a, a third nuclear age. It's much more like the Cold War than like the post-Cold War period, uh, that probably for the first time uh, since the end of the Cold War, the United States is going to need to um, increase the size of its strategic deployed forces, is going to need to uh, deploy new non-strategic nuclear weapons. Uh, I think we should start thinking much harder about missile defenses for Russia and China. So it doesn't follow to me that we say that uh, Russia and China are the most important threats we face, but that missile defense is not for them. I think missile defense needs to be uh, for them. And that arms control, as we've known it for the past several decades, uh, is dead for the foreseeable future. We're not going to be, I don't see how we enter into an arms control deal with Russia and China, where we're reducing um, you know, numerical limits, um, uh, treaties ratified by the Senate, so, um, unfortunately, I think um, it's, you know, it's dangerous for the world, but uh, your listeners need to be clear-eyed that, that we are entering a, a new, more dangerous nuclear environment, much more like the Cold War than anything we've experienced since, since the 1980s. All right. Matt Kronick, thanks for joining us on NucleCast. It was great to be here, Adam. Congratulations on a great uh, program and happy to come back anytime. All righty. Well, thank you and thank you, the listeners, and we'll see you on the next episode. Okay, so afterthoughts. Well, uh, it was a great, great interview with Matt. Uh, always appreciate his thoughts. He's, you know, I think Matt's probably one of the better academics in terms of particularly that's on our side of the issues uh, in terms of those who sort of support the arsenal and see its utility. And I think he makes a compelling argument about why superiority matters and, you know, that sort of really strong psychological element of it. Uh, you know, it's something people often forget. And I, you know, we often can mirror image our adversaries or we presume that they would never think certain things because that's just, you know, unfathomable, but they do. And, you know, the idea that it's important to, you know, show them the strength that they sort of value and respect and, you know, it, it's effective. And I think sort of Matt deals with that and points that out. So hopefully you enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. This has been a production of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington. And this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Grunthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.